From Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. The birth of Jesus into this world, folks, is the most significant birth that has ever taken place in the world. I know that there have been many great men by the world's standards who have been born into this world. And they have probably, in the world's standards, done many great things. But none of them have been as great as Jesus. None of the things that they've done have been as great as what Jesus did. There have been great leaders I think in our nation there have been many great leaders by man's standards. Some have been great, some have been not so great, haven't they? There have been teachers born. Maybe you can think of teachers that you have had in the past. Maybe elementary school, high school, college, and you think they were great teachers, they were great instructors. But they're not as great as Jesus. Nobody can compare to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why, we would ask, what makes the coming of Jesus into this world so significant that we would refer to it as the most significant birth that has ever taken place in the world? Well, I think we can answer that question with a line out of the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And you know what that line says? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Jesus wasn't just another baby being born in Bethlehem that night. Jesus wasn't just another person coming into this world. He was God incarnate. He was and is and shall be God in the flesh. Remember, the angel had told Mary to call him Emmanuel, and Emmanuel literally means God with us. So God has made himself known to mankind through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a record of that in the Word of God. Remember what Jesus said to Philip in the 14th chapter of John. I'm going to test your Bible knowledge. 14th chapter of John, Philip had said, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. We just want to see the Father. We just want to see God. And what did Jesus say in that ninth verse? He said, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me 
hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Say, I want to know more about God. I want to see God. Well, I tell you what, you learn more, know more, get acquainted more, get closer to Jesus, and you'll know more about God. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We need a proper appreciation of Christ coming into this world and the significance of that birth, of that coming. You know, I was thinking about this message and I was thinking about this time of year and the things that we get caught up in this time of the year. Buying gifts and opening gifts. You know, I think I put something on Facebook this past week. It's not so important as what's under the tree as the one who hung on the tree. And that's true. We worry about gifts. God's given the best gift. God's given the most precious gift in the giving of his son. And so we need to have this appreciation of the significance of the birth of Jesus. And hopefully it will develop in each of us a greater love and a greater commitment to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the significance of the things surrounding his birth this morning. And the very first thing we're going to talk about is the significance of the purpose of the birth of Jesus. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? And I know if you listen to me preach, listen to me teach any length of time, you know what I'm going to say probably, but that's okay. There may be people watching by live stream who don't know. But what is the significance of the purpose of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? I think it's stated very simply in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. What the Apostle Paul said in that verse. He said this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. In other words he said you need to listen to this. You need to pay attention to this. And that is this that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What was the purpose of the coming of Jesus? Very simply. Very clearly, he said, to save sinners. You know, the Jews were expecting a king to come in and throw off Roman rule and, and set up a kingdom, but Jesus didn't come for that, that time. He's coming back. He's going to set up his kingdom, but he didn't come for that purpose the first time. He came, how would you like to be born with one purpose, and that purpose was to die? How about that? Jesus was born with the purpose of going to the cross and dying there as the sacrifice for mankind's sin. That's the significance of the birth and the virgin birth of Jesus. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But he came to save sinners. Well, who are sinners? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every man, woman, boy and girl born into this world is a sinner separated from God by their sin. The scripture is very clear about that. So if you have a human mother and a human father, and I think most of us do, well probably all of us do, if you have a human mother and a human father, you were born a sinner and you need to know Christ as your savior. The virgin birth then is very important. Very significant for several reasons. Number one, obviously to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. When God makes a prophecy, it's going to be fulfilled. In fact, one of the tests of a false prophet was if a prophet says something's going to come to happen and it doesn't happen, God said, that's a false prophet, don't listen to him. And God through his prophets said, there's going to be, in fact, Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. But that, that thought right there that a virgin shall conceive. Now, just a woman having a child by the regular means would not be unusual. But something that would be clearly of God, clearly unusual would be for a virgin to have a child. For a virgin to have a baby. 
And God through Isaiah said that's going to happen. And if God said it's going to happen, folks, it's going to happen. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when God was speaking to the serpent actually there in the Garden of Eden. And he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So often a child is called the seed of a man. And he's known in his lineage through his father. But here, Jesus is referred to as the seed of the woman. And he said, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Calvary was the bruising of the heel of Jesus. But Calvary was also the crushing. And that's what that word means, the crushing of the head of Satan. He lost there at Calvary. If these prophecies were not fulfilled... If what God said in Isaiah, if what God said in Genesis 3 did not happen, you know what, folks? We're still in our sin. And we celebrate a holiday which we don't even need to celebrate. If this is not true, you see, God demands a perfect sacrifice. We know that. If you're familiar with any of the Old Testament practices, any of the laws in the Old Testament, God wants a sacrifice that is without spot and without blemish. We know from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that the Word of God tells us, and this was what they understood in the Old Testament, and we understand today that almost all things by the law are purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So in order for sin to be remitted, blood must be shed, but not just any blood. Hebrews 10, verse 4 says this, For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. I don't know how many bulls and how many goats and how many lambs and how many animals were sacrificed during those Old Testament days. Probably rivers of blood were shed during those days as animals were sacrificed in a type, in a shadow, in a picture of the coming Jesus. But not a one, the blood of not a one of those animals could take away sin. It was a picture. It was showing them that blood needs to be shed. The law and the prophets all pointed to one thing and pointed to Calvary. They pointed to the cross when the blood of the only begotten Son of God, the Lamb of God, would be shed there on Calvary that you and I might have eternal life. And the wonderful thing is what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us because it says, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. I'm going to stop right there for a moment because I love to talk about that. That literally means he's not unsympathetic. Jesus is not unsympathetic to us. He knows what we're going through. And how does he know what we're going through? Because it says he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the only person who has ever lived in a flesh and blood body like this who has never committed sin. He is the only begotten Son of God. And Jesus the sinless Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, coming in flesh and blood, serves as our kinsman redeemer. Now, if you want to know about the kinsman redeemer, you can study the Old Testament law. You can read the book of Ruth. A near kinsman could redeem the property or even a family member who had been sold into slavery in the Old Testament days. And Jesus came as a kinsman redeemer to all of this creation and he gave himself, he paid the price for the redemption of mankind and of the creation. And so by the virgin birth and sinless humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, folks, God's demands for a perfect sacrifice were met right there on Calvary when Jesus went to the cross. He was born of a virgin. 
He didn't have a sin nature and he never committed sin. He lived a sinless life and only somebody like that could be the sacrifice for mankind. So there's a significance. We talk about the virgin birth. I think if you're not careful and if we're not careful as God's people, we start thinking about the virgin birth and we just sort of pass right over it. You know, we're so used to hearing about the virgin birth. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't amaze us. It doesn't give us reason to stop and think about it. And so sometimes, well, it's Christmas. Jesus was born of a virgin. Okay, Isaiah 7, 14. All right, I understand that. We sing Silent Night, Holy Night. We sing some of these other songs and it just sort of doesn't even phase us that God did something miraculous. God did something wonderful in the birth of Jesus. But not only is there significance to the purpose of the birth of Jesus, there is significance to the place that Jesus was born. Now we know Micah 5, 2 says, Thou Ephratah Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet of thee shall he come forth. God said hundreds of years before Jesus was born that he would be born in Bethlehem. There's a significance to that. Do you know what Bethlehem means? We understand that the word Beth means house. This is Bethel, Beth house, El God, house of God, okay? And that's what we need to be as a church. By the way, we need to be the house of God. When people come here, they need to know that God is present in these services. God is present in this body. So this is Bethel. Beth means house. You know what Lechem means? Lechem means bread. Bethlehem was known as the house of bread. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, just simply John chapter 6, verse 35. Anybody remember what Jesus said there? I told you it's going to be some... Bible test this morning. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6 verse 35? And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He said again in verse 48 there in John 6, I am that bread of life. The very bread of life that was prophesied even at his birth in the place Bethlehem in the house of bread, Jesus said he is. He is spiritual bread. Jesus is to our spirits what physical bread is to our bodies. You know, we need to eat food. I don't know of anybody around here that's on a crash diet. If you saw our fellowship last Sunday night, I'm not going to comment any more than that. We're not on a crash diet. We like to eat around here, don't we? It's okay, you can do that, we do. We need food, but our spirits need to be fed also. And Jesus will feed those spirits. He is the bread of life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, he said. In fact, at one point there in John chapter 6, he said, unless you eat of me, unless you have me in you, you have no life. And that ascended some folks and they went off and left him and didn't follow him anymore. And I love what Jesus said to them, asked them, he said, will you go away also? And I said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of life. Jesus is the bread of life. He was born in the house of bread. It is so significant that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This was not an accident. God has planned this. He said hundreds of years before, he's going to be born in the house of bread. The bread of life is going to be born in the house of bread. And he was just like God said he would be born. And Jesus was born in a manger. We sing away in a manger. We talk about the manger. And I've seen all kinds of different mangers. 
manger scenes, you know, in Christmas programs and things like that. And some of them, I don't know that any of them look real comfortable, but some are, are so filled with straw and, and so forth and look so nice. You know what a manger was? Most likely it was a feeding trough for the cattle and the goats and the sheep. So our Savior was born in a feeding trough. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, was placed in a feeding trough when he was born. We don't think of a king coming into that, the world that way, do we? We think of a king coming in pomp and glory, but here the lowly birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And the announcement was made to shepherds. By the way, you know, there's a place in Israel they called Shepherd's Field. And if you go over there, the guides will tell you this is where the angels announced the birth of Jesus. You know what shepherd's field is? It is the fields of Boaz. Ruth chapter 3 verse 5. You just go and read about Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, a Midianite woman, married into what ultimately became the line of the Messiah and his birth was announced right there in Shepherdsville. This is not coincidence, folks. Only the hand of God could do this. Only the hand of God could see this hundreds of years before. And we'll say more about the shepherds in a moment. But these are the shepherds that kept the temple sheep. Okay? They kept the temple sheep. And here, these temple sheep, they often fed out of a manger, out of a feeding trough, just like the one that the Lamb of God was laid in after his birth. This is so amazing. If, you know, if I, were, if I were not a believer in Christ and I heard this, I would, just, I would be amazed at the way things worked, the way God had it worked out, the way God had it planned out. And notice before he was laid in the manger, what did Mary do? She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now swaddling clothes consisted of strips of cloth tied together so that they could be wrapped around an individual just like you would wrap gauze around a wound. And they would take these strips of cloth and wrap them. And so she wrapped her baby in these strips of cloth. Let me tell you something else these strips of cloth were used for. To prepare one for burial. You remember when we read about the crucifixion of Jesus, that he was, after his death, he was wrapped in linen cloths and he was placed in a hewn out tomb or literally a cave. By the way, you go over there and the guides will tell you, they'll show you a cave and say, this is what a manger was. We see many times a stable or some kind of built building. Oftentimes it was just a cave. When Jesus was born, he was wrapped in cloth stripped he was placed in a manger in a cave in a feeding trough because the scripture says there was no room for them in the inn. Now we're not talking about Holiday Inn. We're not talking about Hampton Inn or any of those others. We know that in that day, and we'll say more about this in a moment, in that day people rented out places in their homes for someone to live or to come and visit while they were there in Bethlehem. But do you see in the presentation of this. Even at his birth, being wrapped in these strips of cloth, being bound up like you would bind him with gauze, 
it presents a very significant aspect of his life that this baby was born for the purpose of dying. This baby was born with the purpose of going to the cross. You know, one of the things that I like to say when I talk about the birth of Jesus was that Jesus was born in the shadow of the cross. In fact, the reason that background is back up again this week on our PowerPoint, I don't think anything is more significant than to have a picture of the baby Jesus laying there in a the manger and the lamb looking at him and they're both looking in the direction of one thing and that is the cross because Jesus was born for that very purpose. Now as I said, one quick word right quick about the inn and they didn't have holiday inns and so forth. The inn was a lodging place. And people would rent out spaces in their homes for people to sleep or for people to stay. On this night in Bethlehem, because of the decree of Caesar Augustus, Bethlehem was filled with people. People had gone back to their homeland. People had gone back to the origin place of their families to have a census done. Or as the scripture says, to be taxed by the Roman authorities. And so Bethlehem was full of people and there was no room for Jesus in any house, in any inn. You know, that just makes me think of way a lot of people are this time of year. Christmas is not about Jesus. Christmas is about Santa or Christmas is about gifts or Christmas is about just feeling good and having a good time and parties and so forth. And many times, even some of God's people get to the point where Christmas is not about Christ. Christmas is about me. What am I going to get? What am I going to give? Folks, we need to keep Jesus Christ at the center of Christmas. In fact, as we had on our sign a few years ago, without Christ you can't have Christmas. And without Jesus you can't have Christmas. I wonder, if the innkeeper had just known, right, if the innkeeper hadn't just known that this man and this woman who came all the way from Nazareth and she's expecting a child and that child, as Sister Karen sang a moment ago, when Mary kissed the face of her child, she kissed the face of God. If the innkeeper had known that, I wonder if he'd have made a place for Mary and Joseph and for Jesus to be born. And see if we would just realize that, you know, I think sometimes we're, we're very casual with the name of Jesus. I don't know who Jesus is, Right. There's a real danger that if we grow up in church and, you know, we spend all of our lives in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whenever there's services, that we can just get so accustomed to the things that we hear, the things that are preached, the message that is delivered, the scripture that we read, that we just sort of take it all for granted. Again, that old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And so we get so familiar with these things that we just don't stop to think about them. If that innkeeper had known this is the Messiah, how would he have reacted? We don't need to get our calendar so busy and so crowded this time of the year that we don't take the time. I'm not just going to say have the time. You know what? We have as much time. Everybody has the same amount of time in a day and everybody has the same amount of time in a week. And you know why you don't have time to do some things sometimes? Because you don't make time to do things. I've seen people stay up most of the night. And I'm not picking on those that do. Okay? Stay up most of the night on computers or playing video games or watching television or this and that. You know why? Because they make time for it. And yet many times I say, well, I don't have time. Yeah, you have time. 
because you can make the time to serve the Lord. So there's a significance to the place. Bethlehem, house of bread, the bread of life, okay? And there's a significance to the people that heard of the birth of Jesus. And we talked about the shepherds a moment ago. They were nearby. They were in the fields of Boaz. They were in shepherd fields and they were tending or keeping the sheep on that night that Jesus was born. Verse 8 here in our text said, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now one tradition of the Jews during this particular period of time was this, and I'm going to have to read it to you here, during the time of the Pharisees, and it was that of forbidding the keeping of flocks throughout the land of Israel except in the wilderness. You couldn't keep sheep or a flock of sheep near Bethlehem or Jerusalem with an exception. Only the flocks otherwise kept would be those for the temple services. So we have to conclude that these sheep that are being kept and these shepherds are the Levitical shepherds. They're not just regular shepherds. They're keeping the sheep that are going to be taken into the temple and offered as sacrifices. And God's angel appears to them and gives the announcement of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and there shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. I think it's significant that these keepers of the sheep that were to be offered as sacrifices got some of the first news about the birth of Jesus. Hey, you're keeping the temple sheep? Guess what? The Lamb of God's been born. The Lamb of God has come into this world and he's going to be offered up for mankind's sin. And so they got the news and what was their first reaction? Man, we've got to go see this. And they come to the place and they find, the scripture says, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus lying there in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now if you go over to the book of Matthew, Matthew records a little bit about the birth of Jesus. And one of the things that Matthew records, and this is not immediately upon the birth of Jesus, but in the second chapter of Matthew, Matthew records that probably a couple of years after the birth of Jesus, wise men came seeking him. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. And they came bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh, the scripture tells us. Now who were these wise men? Well, the Greek word that is translated wise men there is the word magi. You hear a lot of times this time of year people talking about the magi. They're referring to the wise men, the coming of the magi, the appearing of the magi. Now who were the magi? They were one of a learned and very priestly class. The historian Herodotus that's going back a ways. You know, I trust some older historians sometimes better than I trust modern historians. <laughs> going back to Herodotus, he said that these would probably have been Medes from the land of Persia. And here these men came from the east and they're seeking. They've, they've been led by a star that comes and stops over the house where Jesus is. By the way, you know what these magi were called, what these wise men were called by some? Kingmakers. Kingmakers. And there was a reason that they were called kingmakers. Now these are men that would have excelled in the interpretation of dreams. They would have excelled in astronomy and astrology and the natural sciences. 
And according to some historians, no Persian was ever able to become a king except under two conditions. And you know what those conditions were? Number one, he had to master the scientific and religious discipline of the Magi. In other words, he didn't have to just know it. He had to master it. He had to know what the Magi taught. He had to know what they believed and how they disciplined themselves. And then secondly, he had to be approved and crowned by the Magi. The kingmakers. And they came from the east. Now how many wise men were there? Don't anybody shout out three. Okay. You know why we believe there were three wise men? Because there were three gifts. You know, we all used to, oh, I'll give you one gift. I'm not going to give you two or three. But there were three gifts. We don't know how many wise men there were. I read where some paintings and some descriptions said there could have been as few as two, and some said there could have been as many as eight. We don't know. But we know that they brought three kinds of gifts, and we're going to talk about those gifts in just a moment. But because there were three gifts, we just assume that there were three wise men. We even have a song, We Three Kings of Orient are. Ancient writings and paintings suggest, again, different numbers. But it's not, the number is not significant. It doesn't matter if there were two wise men and it doesn't matter if there were eight wise men. That's not the most important thing here. You know what the most important thing is? And this is going to bring us to our final point this morning. Their most important thing is the significance of the presence that they brought. Amen. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They came with these very valuable gifts. So significant. Gold presents Jesus as potentate or as king. You know, in some countries, you didn't approach the king without a gift. If you were going to come see the king, if you're going to ask a favor of the king, you brought some kind of a gift to the king, and the wise men, the really smart folks, would bring him gold. There's something about kings of old that they liked gold, but they did. And they would bring him gold, and so this gift acknowledges Jesus as king. Now think about gold. Gold's a fitting gift. There's no gift more appropriate for our Lord than gold. By the way, he needs the gold of our lives, doesn't he? Many times we want to give him the copper or the tin or something like that. He needs the gold of our lives. It's a foretelling gift. What is gold? Gold is the most precious metal that we know. So many things are done on the gold standard. You want to see how things are going financially. Sometimes you look at what gold is selling for. Gold is so vital and so precious to us as a metal. There's none more precious. Listen, there's nothing and there's no one that's more precious than Jesus. You know, I said something sort of half lightheartedly a moment ago about giving him the gold of our lives and we give him the tin and and the silver and the copper sometimes. Jesus deserves the very best that we have. Jesus deserves us to give our best in a worship service. You know, I've had people ask me, and this is not to reflect on anyone, any other preacher, but I've asked, heard people ask me, why do you always insist on wearing a tie Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? It's just part of my giving the best. That I, I want to look my best. I want to present a message my best. I've shared with you before, sometimes I go away from here on a Sunday morning and I mentally beat myself up because I think you didn't give it your best today. Folks, Jesus deserves our best. And they brought him gold because gold is the best. He is king of kings and lord of lords and deserves the best that we have. And then they brought frankincense. What is frankincense? 
Well, it was a gummy substance. It came from certain species of tree, but it released a sweet-smelling savor. What does God say about our sacrifices to Him? Not animal sacrifices, but when we give up something or we give of ourselves to serve Him, God calls it a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Just like the frankincense. And frankincense presents Jesus as a priest. It was a priestly gift. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 17 is talking about Jesus. And he says this, For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now if you want to know who Melchizedek was, you go back to the book of Genesis. You read about Abraham. Melchizedek was a priest that served God. He didn't have ancestors in the priesthood. But he was a priest that served God. Well, Jesus was not from the priestly tribe, the Levitical tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah by human standards. And so he was not in their minds a priest, but he is our high priest. I read a moment ago, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our professions. But we have Jesus who is our high priest. Now, I thank God, I believe in the high priesthood of Jesus and the priesthood of the individual believer. You don't need a priest to go to to confess your sins. You can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. For there's one God, the scripture says, and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. I can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. And I can express my needs and I can express my wants and I can ask forgiveness of sins because I have a direct line and so do you. But Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And the scripture says he is a more perfect sacrifice. Better than bulls and goats. Better than the blood of lambs and rams. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And so, we have a high priest that we can go to and that we can go through. I might as well mention this verse of scripture also. Since we're talking about Jesus and going to God through him and glorifying God through him, to God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. The focus of this church is Jesus, folks. And for the last several months, and I intend to keep it up as long as I can, the focus on this sign out here is Jesus and it says right now, Jesus celebrating the birth of him. And my plans are for the next one to say, Jesus living 2023 with him or for him. Okay? It's all about Jesus. And then there's the myrrh. You know what myrrh was used for? To embalm dead bodies. To embalm those who had died. And it reminds us of why Jesus came into this world. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 again. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Jesus came, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means satisfaction. Our sin debt was paid at Calvary. 
And that was the purpose of Jesus coming to the world. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came into this world to satisfy the demands of a holy and righteous God. Now look, I know some folks, and folks, I can't even understand it. I know some folks can't understand how God can separate himself from himself and come to this earth and take on human form and God the Son be talking to God the Father and praying to God the Father. You say, preacher, if, if you can explain that, I'll believe it. But guess what? I can't explain it. But if you don't believe it, you're in trouble. Okay? See, some folks can't even imagine an eternal God. Where did God come from? Well, He's always been. So you believe that? I believe that with all of my heart. And God always will be. Explain that. I can't explain it. You know why? Because I'm a finite being. There was a time when I was not. Now there'll be a time when in the flesh I am not. But my spirit is going to live into eternity. And that's what I'm making preparations for today. Okay? And that's what we need to make preparations for today. But God is eternal. And God is all powerful. Just read what the scripture says about him. And he can and did. In fact, there on the cross when Jesus took on himself the sin of the whole world, what did God do? He turned his back on himself. Now you tell me how he did that. I can't. But I believe the word of God. And it says he did and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus came into this world to die for us. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, satisfaction for our sins. Remember we read last week from Isaiah 53 where it just says that it pleased God to bruise him. It pleased God. It satisfied the demands of God for Jesus to go through what he went through. And then it says, and by his stripes we are healed. That was the purpose of Jesus coming. That was the purpose of his scourging, that was the purpose of his sacrifice on Calvary. And it's indicative of God's love for fallen mankind. Oh, we're familiar with John 3.16, but how often do we just go right over it and miss John 3? For God so loved the world. And that's the cosmos. That's the creation. Everything that God made for God so loved, including mankind, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Don't blow through John 3.16. Stop and think about it, son. But then Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you, each and every one of you, just like he died for me. There's a song we used to sing years ago. I hadn't heard it in a long time. When he was on the cross, we were on his mind, or I was on his mind. When Jesus was hanging there and he was suffering and about ready to dismiss his spirit from his body, he was thinking of you and he was thinking of me. Well, let's wrap this up. These wise men teach us the lesson that real worship involves giving. We're not necessarily talking about money. You know, there are folks who want to accept Jesus as Savior and then they want to live their own lives. You know, it's my life. I can do what I want to do. Well, that's not really giving, is it? These wise men, first of all, you look at what it says in verse 11. It says, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child. This is in Matthew 2. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
They presented unto him gifts. They worshiped him simply. You know, it doesn't have to be complicated to worship the Lord. Just give him what you have. Just worship him with everything that you have. But they worshiped sacrificially also because you look at the value of the gifts they gave. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. They had great gifts to give. They had value. You know what? Some people say, well, I don't have gold and I don't have frankincense and, and myrrh and those things to give the Lord. How can I give unto him sacrificially? Here's what you can do. You can give him your love. You can give him here your labor. You can give him your life. A lot of people want to accept Jesus as Savior, but they don't want him as Lord over their lives. Listen, he insists upon being Lord over your life. He wants to be Lord over your life. Why would you receive his salvation and not make him Lord of your life and let him lead your life? You can give him time. You can give him your attention. You can give him your praise. You may not have gold and frankincense and myrrh, but you can give him everything that you are and you can give him everything that you have. And you say, Lord, if I call it mine, it's really yours. And I understand that you're giving me this to use for you. And then verse 11 says they worshiped selflessly because they fell down and worshiped. They acknowledged he's the one worthy of worship, not me. I think we live in a day when people want to worship the person, they don't want to worship the potentate, okay? I think preachers sometimes have a problem with that mentality. Well, look what I've done. Listen, here's a fact about the ministry. If anything good happens out of my preaching, out of my time as pastor here, folks, I don't get the credit and shouldn't get the credit. Anything good that happens here, all glory goes to God. Okay? That's the way it must be. We need to fall down before him and say, you're Lord. You're the master of my life. Just lead my life. And then give me the grace to pay attention and to follow it. You know, sometimes the Lord tries to lead and we don't even have the grace to pay attention to God and follow his leadership. Lord, you lead me and then give me the grace to follow you and to do what you say. I don't have the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, but I want to do what you want me to do. And what Jesus wants is our hearts and our minds and our lives. Well, we're going to close. The Christmas story is more than just a story. I get disturbed when I hear people say, the Christmas story. The Christ I know what they mean, but it's more than a story. You know, to me, a story belongs sort of in the category with Grimm's fairy tales and, and things like this. This is not a fairy tale. This really happened. It's more than a story. It's the account of God's demonstration of his great love for mankind by coming into this world, taking on human form for the express purpose of going to the cross for our sin. There have been and there are many presents given at Christmas time. Maybe you opened yours last night. Maybe you're going to open them in a few minutes and you wish the preacher would hurry up and get through so you can get to the gifts. Well, just hang on. There have been many gifts given, but none will ever be as great as the one that God gave that very first Christmas over 2,000 years ago. I'm going to close with a verse of Scripture and then we're going to have an invitation hymn. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning. God gave the first Christmas gift. In fact, 
Galatians chapter 4 says, when the fullness of the time was come. So you know what? At the very precise, correct moment, Jesus didn't come a year or an hour or a minute too early. And he didn't come a year or an hour or a minute too late. At the very right time, the fullness of the time was come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Words fail me to express how wonderful God is. He looks at us and what does he see? Well, David said he knoweth our frame that we are but dust. You know? And that's what we are. But we have a spirit that's going to live into eternity. And God says, you know, I've said before, if God's all-knowing and he knew man was going to sin. And I've said before, if I'd have been God, I wouldn't have made man if it was going to cost me my son. And I've been asked here lately, well, if God knew that, why did he make man? I don't know. You have to ask him that when you get to heaven. Okay, Lord, why did why'd all this happen? But that's how great God is. And that's how loving he is. And now he wants every man, woman, boy, and girl to be saved. Not all will be, but he wants them to be. And that is the deep desire of his heart.